Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 261. And in this episode, I drove to Falls Village, Connecticut. That is almost as far northwest as you can go before you cross over the borderline into Massachusetts. Now, we've had a lot of snow and some ice storms in this area lately. So on the drive up, everything was coated in ice and was glimmering and all of the ponds and the lakes were frozen over. The roads were white. It looked like a frozen land. It was actually a really beautiful ride. I think maybe like half of it I was on the highway, but then after that, there's all these side roads to get there. Uh, There was a a, a tiny little covered bridge, I think it was called Bull's Bridge. It's really an enjoyable ride to think and to kind of communicate with myself and to play some music and and sing along on the ride up. So the ride itself was totally worth it. Uh, But my guest was really special. Her name is Chelsea Miller. And I guess the technical term for what she does is she'd be a bladesmith. We didn't use that term at all in our conversation. uh, And she refers to herself as a knife artist. So I'll call her a knife artist. She makes knives and she makes really unique uh, beautiful uh, and practical knives that a lot of celebrity chefs and people who are really in the know uh, love and endorse. So I've been checking her out for a while. I've actually been looking for somebody who who makes knives for quite a while. And we were scheduled to do this and all the crazy stuff that's been happening in my life back in October. Uh, we got it bumped back to now, but I was so happy to be able to go up there as always, like I'm so fortunate that a lot of my guests will host me in their home because I do this from the road, and that always feels all the more special. Uh, her actual workshop is also in her home in Connecticut. You'll hear in the conversation, but she was born in Vermont, and she spent, she spent uh, time in Brooklyn where she started making the knives. Uh, she's got a, a really cool journey. Check her out on her Instagram page and on her website. I will link to both of those in the notes because she's had a ton of press. So there's some really cool videos and it, it's cool to see the knives. They're really beautiful. And she makes them from these uh, these rasps, which makes for a really, uh, a really interesting aesthetic. And uh, I think you'll dig it. So check that out. Maybe even pull it up as you listen to this so you can sort of see what we're talking about and have a cool little visual. So like I said, go to the notes and you'll find all of her stuff. You will also find a link to my Patreon account. That's a subscription-based service where you can give monthly and get some cool kickbacks like stickers, shirts, and things from around the world. We're planning out our summer right now, which I'm very excited about. Going to get to some countries that I haven't been to before. Likely we will be heading into Europe. I might do a little bit of a solo road trip through West Virginia because I've never been there. And uh, I'm starting to make a list of of cool people to check out there. So lots of cool stuff coming up. So far, 2022 has been great for me, knock on wood. Uh, And let's, uh, let's keep the good times rolling. So enjoy this conversation for now with Chelsea Miller. First of all, thank you. It's really wonderful to be here, and you were very patient with me uh, as I went through a bunch of life shit. Um, so I'm um, really happy to be here. 
It's a beautiful drive, and thank you for welcoming me into your home. Oh, you're so welcome. I feel like things happen, you know, when you can most enjoy them. So come when you're ready. Yeah. Um, I, I So I'm going to preface what I'm going to start with uh, by saying I've, I've said this to people before, uh, but maybe I, I haven't meant more meant it more than it's about to be uh, meant. And maybe I'll, I'll retire it after this conversation. But the greatest advertisement, I think, uh, was, or series of advertisements was when Anthony Bourdain did uh, his like raw craft series for the Balvenie whiskey. Mm-hmm. Um, both because like his production team was, they, they would really, really make just beautiful film. And then, like, the way he would exude cool and, like, I don't know, the way that he used words was very, very few people could do that. So that combined with him portraying people who are craftspeople who are doing something that very few people are still doing, Mm -hmm. the sort of slow, hard way, uh, I thought was really beautiful. And we lost him, and not to make it too dramatic, but, like, you know, we lost potentially 20, 30 years of like really mm. wonderful art or content or whatever you want to call it. I agree. And so that ended. And people try to follow the model. Um, I, I saw the the Budweiser piece, I think, that they did with you. Right. And it follows that a bit. And I thought they mm. did a really good job with it. It's just it's so hard to replicate like his level of mastery. Mm-hmm. Um, but I say all that to say I could like envision what your episode would be, right? Mm. Like the slow motion, like you <laughs> banging with the, uh, and I'll get terminology wrong, but um, I'm trying to. The hammer I'm, on the anvil. Yeah, yeah. And slow I'm thinking of. sparks like Exactly. Yeah. I'm thinking of kiln, but what, what would you call it? An a oven? forge. A forge, exactly. Uh-huh. Right, 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 forging. Um, so it saddens me to think that that wouldn't happen, but I could totally see you being on that. Um, I, I actually would love to host that show. Ah, I, hey. really wanted, I really want to take over in his footsteps. Uh, and, you know, I'm in, I'm in conversations right now about, about how to do that, but, uh, but also in that same very intimate day mm. in the life of, like, what inspires you and, in, and traveling around and talking to makers. Uh, another show that I really like is, um, uh, what's it called? Chef's Table. Oh yeah. Similar, similarly, you know, very, very, very intimate in the way that you're focusing directly with the ingredients and the hands, and then the backstory of where all these chefs get their inspiration or the first kitchens they were ever in. Mm. I'd love to take take on a project like that again with with makers because I think there's a lot of commonality between people that make things, but they're the things that they make are so different in themselves. Wow. First of all, I had no idea that you were doing that, so that is <laughs> that's super exciting. I'm gonna. I'm going to pin part of that and come back to it later if mm-hmm. I can remember. You'll you'll notice I I'm going to jump around a lot here, sure. but um, I'm going to build out your story from the beginning. But like one of the things that I'm very fortunate to be able to do and experience doing this podcast is I get to be all over the place, all over the world. Yeah, I've been to parts of eastern and like southeastern Connecticut. Mm-hmm. I guess we're pretty far northwest here. Yeah, the northwest corner. It's called okay. Can you just maybe uh, explain to people a little bit about your 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 town or where you live here? Sure, yeah. yeah. Uh, and my my original experience with, with Connecticut was imagining it was completely all built up and yeah. residential and suburban, and so I'd ne- it was never on my radar to begin with. And growing oh. up in Vermont and living in New York City for twenty years, whenever I would get out of town, I'd just go to Vermont. Mm. So 
Connecticut was definitely not on my radar. And then I started looking, my partner Bruce and I started looking to move out of the city. So we just assumed upstate New York, right? Mm. Upstate New York, it's where all our cheese comes from. (laughs) (laughs) And so we were traveling around upstate New York and all the houses were kind of crappy summer camps that had never been winterized or Mm. all the beautiful old homes were right on a major road. So it was, there was just no inventory whatsoever. And then little things started popping up on the, the realty apps that were just over the border in Connecticut. And I thought, oh, well, I could never con- consider living in Connecticut. It's so residential. Yeah. And then we, we something popped up on Music Mountain Road. And I thought, I don't know, that sounds kind of <laughs> great. Maybe we need to see that. That does sound magical, right? Right? Yeah. Music Mountain Road. I was like, that can't be real. <laughs> uh, and so I remember the first day we were, we were in Wingdale, New York, and we crossed the border and came up Route 7, which is this gorgeous fairy tale kind of winding roads along a riverbed. Mm. And there were probably 30 men out there fly fishing. It was a fall afternoon. The leaves were turning. And I kept looking at Bruce, my partner, and saying, have we like crossed in through a portal like somewhere? Does no one know about this place? Very, very rural, uh, tiny little colonial towns Mm. that just have that are, they really retain this sense of um, old architecture. It's not all, it's not at all built up like we thought it would be. It was really incredible. And then, so when we decided to move here, every time we'd meet local people, they'd always ask us, well, how did you find out about this place? And Mm. don't tell anybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, my dad moved to Maryland when he retired and they they have the same attitude. They're like, we love this town, but don't tell people it'll ruin it. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. It's funny. Do you, um, I'm jumping, but do you read a lot? I used to read a lot. And okay. now that I now that I'm working with my hands more, I read less, but I listen to a lot of a lot of books on you know, um audio audiobooks, podcasts, okay. like all day long. Yeah, I ask because the your about me on your website is like very poetic. It reads like lyrically. <laughs> oh thank you. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a tendency to uh when I write hear things in threes. Mm. Um and oftentimes my partner Bruce will come in and co- sort of make that less <laughs> He's like, you're just going to fall over yourself with all these patterns of three. <laughs> there's like, I've found, um, just being fortunate enough to travel, and I, I do read a lot, like there's a, I don't know if people would be like, what the hell are you talking about? But there's like a poetry to rural settings. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm even thinking of like, the, there's an author, Flannery O'Connor, and she was mm-hmm. from the South, and she wrote a book called Wise Blood. And there's a lot of like really strong language in in those books that people would not want to hear at all today. And also she she describes like some horrific and violent and bloody things, Mm. but it's intertwined with this sort of like rural beauty um, that I think I miss out on being in a city. So maybe just by nature of, of growing up in Vermont, you've got a bit of that in your blood. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And yeah. I, and I, that really got away from me living in New York City for, I lived in New York for 20 years. I moved to New York when I was 19. Mm. But growing up, my relationship to nature was incredibly strong because I was incredibly isolated. I was homeschooled, lived, oh, wow. lived in an area where it was a, an hour drive to the town to get gas or buy buy groceries. Oh. So we grew all our own food. My father was a carpenter, built our own house. And I spent a lot of time in the woods by myself with make-believe friends. Yeah. <laughs> do you have siblings? I do. A younger brother and a younger sister. Okay, cool. So then 
did mom and dad sort of like transfer those um, it's almost like homesteading skills, but like, did mm-hmm. they transfer those skills over to you at a young age? Well, it's interesting because they were city people. Oh. They grew up in very suburban Massachusetts area in huh. the same town. And all they wanted to do was be in the country. You know, it's sort of this cyclical thing where all they wanted to do was be back to the land, have their own, raise their own animals and vegetable garden. And so they taught themselves how to do that. My father apprenticed with a home builder and learned how to build houses. Huh. My mom was also a nurse, so she worked in the local hospital, but the rest of the time was teaching us and and um, homesteading. Hmm. So that a lot of that is in my blood. And so when I moved here in 2020, um, a lot of it was sort of coming back to us in building our, cultivating our first garden. Mm. So a lot of a lot of the mistakes that were made early on were sort of there, just under the surface. So that's been kind of great. But there's also so much more that I'm learning about my relationship to nature now as an adult. That cyclical thing is interesting. I, I saw you also write about how when you were younger, you felt like you were sort of, uh, I guess, chasing happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I. Maybe it's a product of getting older. I look super young, but I'm not super young. Um, <laughs> that, like, I guess I sometimes think, like, oh, I'd be at this age now and I would just be totally content. Mm-hmm. And even when I do something really wonderful, or I'll have a, an amazing podcast conversation or I write a bit, if I write something and I'm very satisfied with it, I'm just like, okay, next thing, like yeah. what I'm constantly chasing. Yeah, that's an interesting, um, I think about that a lot in the terms of when you're younger, I find that for myself sometimes, and a lot of people I know, it's it, you sort of think of it as a race. Mm. So the first to do this, the first to do that, and, and to be established and settled by the time you're 35. But then what? Mm. I mean, that's all, there's a lot of life left after 35. Yeah. So I've, I've always been of the mind that I want to, if I'm not constantly learning, then I'm just uh. decaying. You know, I'm just expiring if I'm not constantly growing and expanding. Um, so I think that has helped me remain to never never um become feeling too stagnant it's like all right if i've done this and it feels great what what more can i do or how much more can i stretch myself how much more how much more good feeling is there out there i like that philosophy but then oftentimes with the with the more and better feeling it's like again it's cyclical like you're either at the top of the wave or you're at the bottom of the wave and it's like you know how 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 low can you go well if i can go that low i can go that much higher yeah no, it, it, it makes a lot of sense to me because right now I'm, I'm pushing my partner really hard. Like, let's get out of the city. Uh-huh. But I know after like six months, I'll be like, I want to just be able to like walk and get like really good <laughs> Vietnamese food or something. And like, yeah. that's harder to do. <laughs> it is yeah, another really interesting thing about getting out of the city that you that I didn't realize would happen is the energy from other people. Mm. And one of the things I do not miss is having to constantly navigate other people's energy when you don't necessarily want to engage with other people's energy, getting from point A to point B, interfering with so many other people on the on the subway or at the store or wherever you are, that I find to be takes up so much time. Mm. It takes up so much of my day that I necess- wouldn't necessarily notice. Um, but being out here, I feel like time tr- mm. passes in a different way That's because there's so much more time where I'm not bumping up against other people's energy. Mm. But at the same time, the the sort of downside of that, the lower swing of that orb, is um, 
is sort of feeling uninspired sometimes, you know, constantly having to come up with new fire on my own. And so oftentimes I really enjoy just going in the city and walking around and I get, I get much more excited about my own ideas. Maybe it's just that transference of energy and, and having to like keep everything close. I'm not sure what it is, but oftentimes if I'm feeling kind of stagnant, it's good to go in the city just, and just yeah, have no, to navigate other people's energy. So then were like the early, like heaviest days of the pandemic difficult for you uh, creatively and productivity wise? We actually were really lucky in the sense that while we were looking for something upstate, we had to leave our place in Brooklyn at a certain time mm. and we hadn't found a place yet. So we just put everything in storage and went to Vermont to be with my mom for what we thought would be a month or two. And so that was our plan to just be there, take our time, not feel rushed to find something. And so we had been there since January before the pandemic began. And so once everything was shut down and we were totally isolated, it was actually an incredible experience getting back in touch with nature mm. and my family and for my partner Bruce to be there and get to know my mom and my siblings better. And also learning and um learning and relearning what I had experienced as a kid of starting our own garden and yeah, yeah. and all of that. We got a little bit of firsthand practice before going out on our own. Where in Vermont uh, was it that you grew up? It's called the Northeast Kingdom. And okay. if you're driving from New York, you get to Vermont, um, Southern Vermont, and it's about two hours drive north. Oh, okay. It's almost, almost to the border Canada. of Canada. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. And Very you, rural. You came to New York to try your hand at acting? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, ca I came here uh, to New York when I was 18 to go to acting school. Wow. Did you get the chance to, to be in things? Yeah. It was, I loved it. And huh. I knew even before I applied to colleges that I wanted to be in New York. So even though I had other opportunities, I chose New York because I just felt like I wanted to be in class with working professors, people mm. that were actually out auditioning or teaching or directing. And it was an incredible experience. And I've always been interested and obsessed with New York. And it, it was great. I loved it. Was it TV or? It was. At that time, there really weren't many programs for TV. So it was theater, oh, singing and dance. Oh, wow. And it's so funny because we had a class that was all about studying previous performances, like, you know, amazing, amazing performances. And, and there was no YouTube. So we'd have a class twice a week in this dark little theater watching what would be YouTube today. Yeah, yeah. But it was incredible. I just can't even imagine what it was like for, for people going to that school even two years after I had left because so much of it was just available on your personal computer. Yeah. I've, 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 I'm not an actor, but I've done, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm a drifter. So like in, like in between periods of working at schools uh, just to get some income, I've done like background stuff, uh -huh. which actually like can be quite brutal because it's like very, very long days of like oh, yeah. hurry up and wait kind of stuff. But mm -hmm. um, it is kind of cool like when I could spot myself for like the two <laughs> seconds that I'm in something. But yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I'd probably outside of LA, there's no better place than like New York or maybe Atlanta for that. But mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, that all wrapped up when your dad was sick? Yeah, it was, it was kind of a natural... Well, let's see, how do I put this? I had been out of school for probably five or six years mm. working professionally and becoming really frustrated with the fact that unless you wanted to just do background all the time, the projects were few, fewer, and also there was much less money involved. Mm. Oftentimes it'd be for free. There's always someone willing to do something for free. Um, 
And it was just a lot of working and working and working on something that then would never get picked up or mm. would never, would just never happen. So I was just feeling really frustrated, just feeling like I wanted to work all the time and there weren't as many opportunities as I had hoped. And my dad getting sick gave me an opportunity to kind of figure out, okay, is this really what I want to be doing? So I took that time to go home and spend time with him and with my family. And then the knife making aspect of it was really just came from helping him in his shop because he was pretty disabled at that point. Mm. Uh, and, and just playing around on my own while being in there. And so there was no, there was no intention of what anything would become. I had really no plans for it whatsoever. It just felt good to be doing something Mm. (laughs) and it being rewarding and not having somebody either say, no, thanks next, or sorry, we don't have the funding. You know, it's just the rejection had sort of been getting to me and just to feel, feel fulfilled just working and, um, having something to look at at the end of the day. <laughs> That's a very, like, literally a different muscle, but also, like, just a different creative muscle, obviously, than acting to actually, in a sense, it's kind of fine arts, right? Like, you're, you're, you're making something with your hands. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have, a, like, experience before that with, with actually making things? I did, and I, I wouldn't have thought that at the time, but looking mm. back, I realized, having grown up there in that same shop, on my parents' farm, I I had a really b- strong understanding of metalwork and woodworking, mm. just from being around my dad and making little things, you know, for my dollhouses and things like that. Um, so it came very naturally to me. I mean, I had a lot. I had a lot to learn. That most of what I had to learn was that I had to push myself a lot further than I thought. Mm. So it took a lot of break, pushing something to the point of breaking, to realize, okay, you can just pull back a small amount. Mm. Why knives, though? You can make many things from metal and wood, yeah. right? Uh, I, I still ask myself that question huh. a lot. And I think it probably has a lot to do with the fact that when I was in New York working as an actress, I was also working as a cater waiter and a cocktail mm. waitress. So I spent a lot of times in kitchens and with chefs. Um, I worked at the Food Network, so I'd be up oh, wow. in their test kitchens and helping oh. prep foods and serving dinners in the Food Network kitchens, which That's was cool. incredible. Yeah, and just being around people who had the same sort of passion that I did about their about their creative gifts, uh, and it, be, it being in food, really tied me really closely into that world. But also growing up, my mom. My mom cooked every night for us, and she actually had studied macrobiotics when she was oh, younger, cool. before she moved to Vermont with my dad. And so she was a macrobiotic chef in our house, and she had a number of knives that I always found really beautiful and really interesting, a lot of Japanese and German knives that had, like my knives, they're carbon steel, so they have an uh, interesting patina, and I learned very young how to make sure that they're always dry and never left in the sink or the dishwasher. So there was, there was all of that in my, in my past. And then uh, when I first started playing around, I, I started, you know, making rings and bracelets and I had, it just didn't, it wasn't satisfying to me at all. It wasn't, didn't feel, didn't have that sort of ring to it that felt like, ah, yeah, that's, that's, that feels good to me. So I just kept playing around and my brother had made a hunting knife and oh, cool. from the looks of, just from turning that over, I thought, well, let me, let me try that. So he's walking me through the steps. And by about the third step, I felt like, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I got it. I got it. <laughs> I'll come back to you if I need help, if I break something. I want to figure it out. Let me figure it out. That's very cool. So in, in terms of um, 
keeping your knife um, in working condition, let's say, uh-huh. is the idea that like if you have a really good chef's knife that it would like last you a lifetime or is there like maybe like a, I don't know if shelf life is the term, but like. I would say depending on the quality of the steel, it should last many lifetimes. I have a few knives that I've found in actually great flea markets in New York that don't exist anymore. There was one on, I think it was like 51st or something between 10th Avenue and the highway every Saturday with just crazy amounts of garbage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just so much garbage. <laughs> but incredible steel, incredible old rusty knives and with a little a little oil, they're just fantastic. Oh, that's so awesome. it sort of really depends on the quality of the steel. A lot of knives that are made now that you buy from a manufacturer, it's a lot of the metals have been blended together. There's so much recycling that's gone on in the metal world that hasn't been very pure. So it's hard to know exactly what you're getting. Mm. But o- older knives especially are incredible. But yeah, any any good knife that you have, as long as you take care of it, you don't be don't put it in the dishwasher. You know, don't open too many coconuts with it. Yeah, it yeah, should yeah. last many lifetimes. Oh, okay, cool, cool. Um, there's a there's a photo you posted about of your dad. Uh huh. And um, for everyone listening, like I'll, I'll link to your social media. So pause right now and, and pull it up. <laughs> uh, but he. It's such an amazing picture. So he has his crutches, right? I yep. think you probably know what I'm talking about in a hat. I think so. And, you know, not knowing him at all or you or anything really, like the the image get, leaves so much to your imagination to like create this story around. And it, it makes him seem like he uh, was like such a character with a lot of layers. So, Oh my goodness, um, couldn't be more true. And even in that picture, I believe he might be wearing a wooden hat that he, he made. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He, he, he died with a lot of projects unfinished. Let's just say that. Mm. So he had so many going at the same time, much to the dismay, dismay of my mom, you know, he had the, <laughs> probably the world's worst ADHD you can imagine, but a lot of creative people do, but he, he actually made his own crutches. We, what? um, when he was, uh, when we, he was in a rehabilitation process, we built him this walker out of, <laughs> We would, we would drive around and go pick up free bicycles and then bring them home and cut them apart and weld them together into this V-shaped walker. So it was like a tricycle walker. That's awesome. And he had handlebars that he could rest his elbows on and little handbrakes <laughs> on the wheels. We called it his rock walker. <laughs> so he could actually go out in the field and up some of the trails in this bicycle walker. Oh, that's so cool though. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> so a lot of the, or most, right, of the materials that you use to source your products come from your home in Vermont? Yeah, exactly. Mm. When I first started making knives, we didn't have a lot of fancy bar steel lying around. So my dad pointed to a bucket of rusty horseshoe rasps, which I've always really loved the horseshoe rasp because it's it's aesthetically very uh, intriguing. It has these cross hatched triangular teeth on one side, like a, like a really strong cheese grater. Yeah. And the reason we had those is because that when he first started building houses and was homesteading, he couldn't afford a tractor. So he bought two workhorses, Belgian workhorses, mm-hmm. and he would use the horses to log the trees. So he'd log the trees with the, with the horses and he had, he would mill them by hand with just, um, you know, an ax and, and he would care for the horse's hooves himself with the farrier's rasps. Wow. Did, so was that, was there like an experimentation phase? Like, did you know that those would work in making a knife? Not really. Oh. No, it was really just about 
trying different materials and the, cause I worked with some stainless steel as well. And it was really just about the feeling that you get working with the metal. Cause it's a very collaborative process. Mm. I am not in any means in control of the material. It is really controlling me. Mm. I'm just really creating the parameters. Uh, and working with that metal in particular, it just has, again, like a certain energy. It's just really powerful, but, but forgiving and really rewarding to work with. Are you the only one doing that? Using those. I'm not the only knife maker who uses them, but as far as I know, I'm the only person knife maker who leaves the rasp on one side. Yeah. And so that came from just this love of connecting the stories, you know, Mm. having this through line. So I, I want, I want this knife, whoever's holding this knife to also be able to, you know, see in through this window, which is the rasp to its previous, its previous life as this tool filing horses hooves Mm. so that it's not so far removed. I love the idea of that. And then all the wood that I use for the handles also comes from (laughs) the million projects that my father never finished. All the wood that he milled that was just stacked in the in the pole barn in Vermont. Is there like an endless supply of that or will one day that be gone? <laughs> I'd say it's pretty endless as long okay. as I can get to it before it starts to decay too much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when you were in New York, did you have to like rent out a, a space or is there yes. are there like communal spaces that like Yeah, the first shop I had was um a hundred square feet within a, a wood shop, a workshop. Oh, okay. And that was great. I had a little corner with a great big window. So that was really nice. Mm-hmm. I think I drove everybody crazy because I, I, I never had prop proper, um, a proper way to manage all the dust. So people would come in, they'd be like, Oh God, it tastes like metal in here. <laughs> it was pretty frustrating. But of course it's, it's very difficult to find space in New York. A, a lot of those spaces, it oh, yeah. wasn't legal for me to really be creating sparks and fire in yeah. those spaces. And a lot of the landlords didn't know. Um, the space after that I had was at the very back of a motorcycle chop shop. You'd walk to the motorcycle oh, cool. shop then through a ceramic studio. And then at the very back, there was a little partitioned in plastic area for me to be making knives. Again, no dust collection, just, you know, me in a, me in a very intensive mask trying to look through all of the sawdust. <laughs> and you were selling them at Brooklyn Flea? Yes. Mm-hmm. When you were doing that, um, was there a point where it became apparent to you, like, okay, like this is a thing, Thing. This is something that maybe can sustain me financially and work-wise. Um, like, what were were you selling out? Were people starting to like ask for things custom? Yes, to all of that, except that I thought I didn't think it was a thing. I didn't huh. really think about it very much at all. It really was more about I had been through this rather traumatic experience of of my dad being ill and not not really knowing how I was going to continue in this career that was not was not really rewarding at all, mm. um, even though it was my passion. And so it just felt good. It just felt mm. really good to be able to have something that was mine, that nobody could take away. And uh, the response I got was so overwhelmingly positive and inquisitive. People would come up to the booth and just be blown away. Like, wow, what is this? Oh my God, what does this do? Like, who are you? What are you making? So it just opened up this conversation that I had not had in so long mm. about why it is I'm doing what I'm doing. You don't, you don't walk into an audition and people don't ask you, oh, this is so me- so interesting that you've chosen this monologue. You know, where are you from? And <laughs> what are your goals and desires and dreams? That just 
just doesn't happen or it didn't happen for me. And so it was just, it just felt really good. And that feeling just made me, inspired me to keep doing it. Okay. I want to explore that a little bit. Um, so I think that there's a few different things that people would be interested in. There's mm-hmm. the actual product and it's beauty, the artistic component of it. And then also it's utility, like why it would be a good knife. But the more I have people on who are craftspeople and who make things, I see like people are very interested in them who, who don't do that thing. Like, mm-hmm. and like, I'm also one of those people. I've never made a knife. I took a tech class in the seventh grade and I made like one of those <laughs> stupid little wooden cars and went down a ramp. But, <laughs> but I watch what you're doing. I watch what, you know, I had someone on who makes fish sauce or like I just had Joseph Yoon who makes yeah. cricket powder, right? right? Like, and I'm fascinated by all of it. I think I have an idea, but do you ever think to yourself, and not in a way to diminish it, like, of course, because what you're doing is you're making something of great quality. But do you ever think, like, why are people so interested in this? Um, I've, I, I've actually never thought about it in that way. I, I tend to ask myself, uh, like, ask myself that question mm. more often. Like, why am I interested in this? Mm. And I don't really have an answer for that. I think that it happens to be something that came easy to me, which is very odd because it's not really, not, not many people do it, mm. and especially not female knife makers. Mm. There really aren't very many of them. And so it really just came out of this this connection with my dad and having having him as a mentor available to me, I never dreamed of being a knife maker. And I wasn't really that interested in collecting knives or uh, other knife makers. Yeah. So I guess... I, I don't I don't really know what people are what, why people are so fascinated. Okay. Are there is everyone just a crazy knife person or is it just this knife that looks so different? I, I don't know. <laughs> I have a few hypotheses or hy- is that the plural? Yeah, I think uh-huh. so. You tell me if any of these, uh, like, if you think any of these ring true. I do. I, I do think probably like you mentioned a component is. And probably unfairly, but if somebody said to me, what does a knife maker look like? Yeah. I would think of like this dude with giant forearms who's like <laughs> slamming down like the hammer on the metal, right? Like, and A beard always catching fire. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And probably that's ridiculous. So maybe that's a component of it. But I also think more and more we are enamored by people who kind of break out of this sort of standard trajectory for what we're all sort of told life is and for what we all kind of become disillusioned by. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a scary thing to go out on a limb and say, I'm going to do something independent of other people and to be my own boss and to kind of be the sole reason why I succeed or fail yeah. uh, versus like, you know, working for a company and sitting at a desk and sort of having that job security. Um, so I think we would all like to do something mm-hmm. where we can break out, but it takes a, like a real vast amount of courage to do so. And I think that part of, par, po- possibly, maybe part of that fascination is that question, who gave you permission to do what you do? Mm. I think that has a big part of it. Uh, it. It takes a lot of guts to do something that 
you know, nobody's tried to be a pioneer, let's say, to do something that nobody's tried before. But where I was coming from, I really wasn't afraid to fail because I was sort of at a point where I didn't really know what I was going to do next anyway, Mm. how I was going to approach the rest of my life. So I didn't really have very far to fall. I was already, I was already a bit lost. Mm. And so, you know, the knife making sort of offered me, offered me a path without without a lot of expectation on my part. I didn't have to, I didn't have any startup money. I didn't have any business plan. So I wasn't, I wasn't afraid of, of, um, you know, failing my goal. I didn't have a goal. Mm. I just let it continually guide me as I, as I went forward. And it taught me little by little about how to run a business and then what people are liking, what they're not liking, reading feedback, reading criticism, and then growing from that, you know, always, always being able to shift based on what I was actually experiencing in real time. Mm. I think we're at, we're, we're like finally coming out of also like, there is this post-World War II, um, how do I say this? There's a lot of like, there were Tupperware parties and TV dinners and make a jello mold because that's an easy thing to do and it doesn't necessarily require skill. I'm not trying to like insult anybody, but that's what it was. It was yeah. like, okay, you know, people are getting back to work. Let's make life very easy for mm-hmm. people. Um, but that sort of like... <laughs> Uh, sanitation almost or sanitization of life mm. is like very it lacks flavor it's not sexy it's not there's not skill involved and I think mm-hmm. we're refocusing now on like long lost skills and products um, and even like the the nose to tail cooking and food mm-hmm. movement it, it's not a movement because it's what people did for the majority of like right. human existence but right. I think we're coming back around on those things yeah again like another another cycle that mm. I think about a lot in terms of people needing to feel fulfilled by getting out of the kitchen mm. you know not being burdened by carrying the household by having to be in the kitchen all the time. Mm. And then that comes back around to feeling to, you know, when you're eating out all the time or you've got your TV dinner or everything is as easy as possible, that, that lack of fulfillment, that lack Mm. of connection, that lack of connection to the, this resources that you're cooking with and the nutrients and the time spent with family preparing and sharing food together. So I think that that now has led to this, you know, again, coming back to this movement of fewer gadgets, and intentional pieces in your kitchen or your home, really bringing back that opportunity like a Shabbat dinner, let's say, like Mm. knowing where you're going to be every Friday night and you're just there to be together. There's no, there's no hurry. There's no rush. Kind of back to what we were talking about earlier, how when you're in this younger phase of your life, you think that it's this race to the finish line. But then what do you do once you get there? You've got all your little gadgets that make your life so easy, but where are you going and Mm. who with? It's strange because it's also like coinciding with like the rise of the metaverse and things like that. Yeah. Have you ever seen the movie Children of Men? It sounds familiar. I don't think I've seen it though. There's uh, Michael Caine is a character in it and it's, you know, it's this sort of dystopian future, but he lives in this house with like all these old books, which I maybe were even like outlawed at the time. And He's got weed growing there. Like no one's got weed anymore and uh-huh. like, they're smoking weed. And he's just like this sort of off the grid guy. <laughs> and I, I 
And some, sometimes I like foresee that as my future. It's like everyone else is going to be plugged into this like weird yeah. matrix world uh, and I'm going to be fighting against it with like my house full of books and, and it's weed. So, it's <laughs> so funny. I mean, it really is. It's all about perspective, right? And like what what your experience has been. You, you just saying that reminds me a lot of right before, the year or two before I started making knives, I was dating this guy who comes from a, very, very, very wealthy family. Mm. And, my, you know, I did not grow up in a wealthy family at all. We we had a lot of resources, but by most people's standards, that we would be considered poor. Mm. And it was really interesting. I remember the first time I took him to meet my parents, he said to me afterwards, I've never met people that are so rich. Whoa. And that really made me think about my experience in a very different way, specifically talking about my dad and his yeah. access to nature and creativity and a beautiful, loving family that all get along and speak to each other. You know, he saw that as just invaluable, something mm. that was just mind blowing to, excuse me, to him. Um, and, you know, because I had never been around money very much, it was like, oh my God, like if I stay with this person, like I get to drive a, <laughs> I get to drive a Range Rover and like, oh, I'll never have to worry about anything again. <laughs> So it's all just like, I think it's all about perspective and, and where you are at which end. <laughs> yeah, it's that chasing happiness thing again. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so if if I, and no disrespect to any like companies that I mentioned, but just this helps me like illustrate a point. Mm-hmm. So if I go to like, uh, if I buy a knife from like Cuisinart, I mm-hmm. guess is like a, a major brand. Is, is that knife essentially like being made by machines on like a mechanized assembly line? And, yes. Okay. Yeah. So I guess then what would be the difference in feel and utility between that and what you're making? And like, why are so many chefs preferring what what you make like outside of like the actual like authenticity and the one of a kind, like it's actual mm-hmm. usefulness. Mm. Well, one thing about machine made knives it's, is that they're designed to stay sharp as long as possible. But mm. once they're dull, they're really, really hard to sharpen. So you'd have to send them away professionally. And then this, they're never quite the same once you have to sharpen them. And with a handmade knife, they are, they're much easier to care for on your own. And so you pay a lot more perhaps for something that you may you may even have to like wait a long time on a wait list for someone to hand make you something but in the long term if you're willing to put in the time and learn how to sharpen your own knife you're going to get much more wear out of it. It's going to last a lot longer. And mm. a lot of, you know, I see a lot of varying prices in in knives that you can get machine made, but really they're all pretty much the same. They're all made in the same factory. They just have a different, it's really just an, a design aesthetic, mm. but generally it's not the most glamorous steel you could you could make a knife from. And it's just really about margins for all those big companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could probably, any product, right? Knife, I don't know, car, whatever, like table, replace that. Mm -hmm. And it would be the same thing. Yeah. And it's, it's not so easy to find handmade knives. There, there's a great store in New York called Corin Knives and they have an amazing selection, mainly Japanese makers, but there are a lot of places online. I can't think of like a few names right now, but maybe we can put it in the show notes of places that curate 
knife makers. Hmm. So there's a lot of great Australian makers and Japanese where on some sites where you can find their work, but it's very difficult to find those makers individually on your own. Um, otherwise you're just left with, you know, the, the Cuisinart or which they they pretty much all just come from the same factories in China mainly. So are there, cause you mentioned Japan, I think earlier you mentioned Germany, are there differences, uh, in regards to where it's made? I don't know if it's like cultural differences or such? It, there are differences in the steel, the steel available. Oh, okay. So in Germany, for example, Solgen steel is a really pure, is a really pure steel that hasn't been recycled with too many other materials. Oh. Um, and Australian steel is really pure. Um, I, uh, the rasps that I use, they used to all be made in the U.S., but now a lot of those plants are in Mexico, oh. and it's really hard to know exactly what the makeup of the steel is. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I get some files that are just unusable. They're, they're just not the same. They're just, I can hardly work with them. So I have to be very picky about where they come from, mm-hmm. and I tend to really like to, to just collect old, old, old files. Yeah. So if somebody um, were to be like, hey... I've got my dad's old boat in the yard. That's mm-hmm. a wooden boat. Would you be able to like customize something if they sent you materials? Or oh, not? absolutely. Yeah, yeah oh. and I do that all the time. Oh, That's cool. one of my favorite projects is to, a lot of times people will send me an old rasp that they found in their grandfather's barn or something like that. Or their dad was a mechanic and so they take a, a, a file that he used and will make a knife out of that or a whole set of knives. Or sometimes even wood from a barn or... You know, oh, that's just, so cool! Yeah, I love being able to put that together to, as something as something to carry on in there in that sort of vein. How how long does like um, you get the raw materials to? Hey, here's a finished knife. How long does that take? Uh, to make a knife, I can make a knife in about two days, start to finish. Okay. But it all depends on how many other orders I have in the works at mm. one time. I have a, on my website. I have a a structure which works pretty well for me right now. And it took me a long time to get to this structure, a lot of just trying different, different ways of, I used to make everything in a batch and then offer it for sale at one time and it would all sell Mm -hmm. out. And then it was just, it opened up for, it opened myself up for a lot of communicating back and forth through email about what's available next or can you customize this? So I decided the best thing that works for me now is just to have five prototypes. So you can pre-order something, you can customize it in the notes, you can send me your own material, but then you have three options. You can join the wait list Mm -hmm. or you can expedite based on a certain date that you choose. Mm. Now let's say, we'll, we'll, we'll call back our friend Target. Let's say Target's like, <laughs> hey Chelsea, we would like to exclusively sell your knives. Mm-hmm. That would probably be impossible, right? It would really more be like you putting your name on a product that they're making. Well, it would, yeah, it would be, it would be probably a licensing deal mm. where I would be able to license them a design that I would make that I would make specifically for them. I see. But I would want the opportunity to to approve the final product. So, you know, for someone's margins like Target, they'd probably want to have them made in either India or China. Hmm. And the steel available at that cost isn't really great. So it would it would all depend on how well they were able to execute that. Another layer would be to have, they could hire me to procure them. But I it, again, it would be, I would have to source the steel and make sure that it that it um, is you know to my to my liking, and that outsourcing of the labors for just bottom line, so they could sell it cheaper. I guess. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I wouldn't be able to make them by hand myself for yeah, for Target. 
or or or, anyway. <laughs> or even a restaurant. Oftentimes, restaurants ask ask me for uh, steak knives, but I do have a partnership with a very small company in France, oh, and wow. they and they have access to the most glamorous steel out there, and that's what I use. And so they're still quite expensive, but you know they're. They're beautiful and they're exactly as I would make them if I made them by hand, but they can make 15 of them at a time and instead of one for me. So like for them, like if they have this steel, mm-hmm. would they ever like uh, send you out there to make them or do they ship it here? You make them, you ship it back. I, I provide them the design. They make it all in France, ship it to me, and then I provide it to my clients here. Oh, that's awesome. It's pretty great. Yeah, they're amazing. And um, unlike any of those really big factories. They actually also make knives for larger companies as well. Um, they're, mm. not using, they're not using the same steel because the margins, again, have to be much lower. Mm. But uh, it's, it's a quite inter- interesting sort of collective where one family of knife makers is doing all the water saw, all the water cutting of the blades, and then another family is doing all the sharpening and another family is doing the, the, the handles and the assembly. Hmm. So I have a person there who coordinates all of that for me. But instead of having one really big company, these families have specialized in specific parts along the way of the of the production. That's really cool. Do you so are there like a lot of companies that you have to turn down then? Are there a lot of people asking you to partner or uh, so far I've been able to take them all on. The oh, largest cool. the largest run that we've done is for C B two this last year. So we did steak knives mm. in sets of four for C B two. And it was the same process. I just went I worked with them, gave them a, a choice of about five different styles. And then based on the one they chose, I sent that file to France and then we just went from there. Wow. Yeah. You get a lot of like um I don't know if it's like if cosine is the right word, but like a lot of positivity from like uh, people with big media followings. Like I don't know if, if people still say like celebrity chef and stuff like that. Uh, does that feel normal to you now, or do you like geek out about that at all? Um, oh gosh, I guess I guess it feels it feels normal because I get so excited to collaborate with people like that. That's really, hmm. I mean, that's what I find the most fun is 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 meeting with a celebrity chef or, you know, a chef that's, that's really, that's really doing, that's really satisfied in what they're doing. Um, there's nothing better than like talking about knives with a chef. They just, their eyes would glaze over. And I'm always curious to know like what their first knife, knife experiences were, what, what it was like growing up in the kitchen where they grew up, uh, what inspires them, what kind of ingredients they're most attracted to, and also what if they have a restaurant, what it is that they want their customers to be to to leave dinner feeling. Mm. You know, what it, it's sort of like a theater, you know, what the sort of stage that they've set, what is it? What is this experience that you're trying to create for people? And it's always different. And i'm I'm not so sure that the guests even understand that or realize that they're <laughs> that that's happening. But I'm always really curious to know. Oh yeah, you're perfect for that show then. <laughs> Circling back to that. You know, I always talk about how um, I think through traveling, I've been able to see, how should I word this? I don't want to say like food's not important in the States because of course it is. But I think especially for people who are super busy because of work, like we often, we eat more in like the animalistic sense than the fact that like, we eat because we have to eat and we have mm. to keep going. Yeah. Where it's a lot slower in places I've traveled to. Um, you know, like the workday shuts down in Europe so that you can have a lunch 
with people and like smoke yeah. a cigarette and maybe even have a beer in the middle of the workday. Like, mm-hmm. um, or in, in parts of Asia, I've been invited into homes and there's just this like massive feast, but it's just like a regular Tuesday. And like, what's going on here? <laughs> uh, and I had never really thought now too, like it, it's clicking in my head, like just how important the, the process is as well down to even like the instruments that you're using to make the food. And, mm-hmm. and when you slow it all down and you think about those things, it is that much more enjoyable. And I always talk about like how powerful food is because like you're literally giving somebody sustenance and that's, yeah. uh, if you're able to do that well and keep people happy and, the, and their stomachs happy, that's, that's a, that's a really cool power. It's a superhero power. Yeah. <laughs> like, and when yeah. you think about quality of life sort of as a broad theme, what is it that, that offers more power in, mm. in providing for quality of life? It's that connection, right? It's sustenance and spending time with one another. I think that that has, plays a really big part in it. And again, I think perhaps in the U.S. we get very caught up in being the most productive. Again, back in that race, back in that race to success. Uh, you know, it's like before COVID, all of my friends would tell me, like, oh, I never take a sick day. You know, I go to work, I go to work sick. And you think, well, is that the best for yourself and your coworkers? Like mm. maybe you should just make some chicken soup and stay <laughs> yeah. home. Have your neighbor bring you something to eat. Um, so I think that unfortunately, I mean, I've experienced that traveling in the U.S., just areas of just food desert, you know, nothing mm. but fast food available. And but hard, you know, the only place you buy groceries is being a Walmart. And to me, growing up in Vermont and also just living in the Northeast, that's so foreign to me. I just, I didn't even know that was a reality until, until taking some road trips like through the Northwest. Oh, totally. Like, I try not to be like, as the older I get, like I was definitely like I saw the world uh, through very strong opinions and was very dogmatic when I was younger. But so, you know, I've heard even people like when some folks are making the argument about like how we have to to improve some neighborhoods and cities and talking about food deserts, people are like, well, what is that? Like you live in a city, you can get to mm-hmm. a supermarket. But yeah, when you, if you if you drive around this country or road trip around this country, there are places, and I've I've been in towns where like the the grocery is is a family dollar or um, mm-hmm. what's the other one? Uh, I forget Dollar Tree or something like that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's like you know that there's nothing really fresh there. Yeah, uh, I it, heard some it's eye opening. Sorry to interrupt. I heard yeah. some statistic at one point, and I'm not going to remember exactly what the numbers were, but it was about about Rite Aid, Rite Aid, and. Uh, Walgreens selling more food than Whole Foods and Trader Joe's in some parts of the country. And I think of, oh, I think of a drugstore and I'm trying to picture like what food, mm. what I would consider food is available in there. And it's all, you know, it all, everything comes in a pressurized bag or frozen. <laughs> yeah. And to me, that's just not food. I mean, I get very depressed sometimes walking into even, even the grocery store that I, that I shop in. If you didn't know how to eat healthily, mm. you'd be very misled. Mm. I, I walk through sometimes amazed thinking, how, how is this legal? This, is, this cannot be considered food. Yeah. This can't be considered food. I mean, and I, I just, I, yeah, I think that <laughs> it's really unfair for a lot of people, you know, to be, to first of all, have, have that presented as food and also a lack of um, educating people in how to sh- prepare food for themselves. You mentioned France, but do you get to sort of like interface and interact with um, 
chefs from around the world doing yes. what you do. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it's really great. Really great. I saw you, you went to Morocco, huh? Yes. Oh, and I can't wait to go back. Oh, how did you find it? Did you like Morocco it? Morocco is one of the few places I've been so struck by the fact that everybody makes something. Oh, Everyone yeah. is a craftsperson in Morocco. It's unbelievable. You just walk down the streets and you don't even have to be in the old cities in the Medina and you just hear clink, 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 clink everywhere you go. People are just, if it's if you're awake, you're making something. Mm-hmm. Either you're making food, you're making dishes, you're making brass doorknobs, you're, you're making things. You're repairing bicycles, you're fixing cars, you're retrofitting scooters. You're just always making something. You know, I didn't, so we, we, my partner and I spent about four weeks there. I didn't pick up on that until now you're just saying it. I'm like, yeah, of course. Even down to like peanut butter or honey yeah. or baked goods. Like that is true. There are so many shops going on mm-hmm. simultaneously. Yeah. And in the, in the, in the very old cities, like in Fez, for example, mm. it's one of the oldest oh, Medinas yeah. in, in the Arab world. And, uh, Fez is incredible. I, I, I remember having this sense that, being aware that there's no municipality, there's no garbage truck that comes down those tiny little streets that really only one person can walk single file in. Yeah. Everyone is responsible for their own space and the own their own the, the garbage that they create. So everything is absolutely spotless. And you're not relying on any city city officials whatsoever. Like everyone just takes care of their own their own stuff. <laughs> and there's just there are shops with six shelves loaded full of fresh bread. And you just realize they're not going to sell all that bread, but they're going to continue to make it. Yeah. Like it's going to be fresh every hour. If you, if you come by an hour later, there'll be one that just came out of the oven. Oh, don't bother with the one that was an hour old. Like that's no good anymore. It's just incredible. Just this constant production of beautiful handmade things. I think it's the Medina in Fez. Because that one is like massive, right? Mm-hmm. I, like you could get, yeah, okay. <laughs> so it is like a city within a city mm-hmm. and you can get lost. And yeah, you'll be you'll be wandering around and like, here, here's a shop of like, uh, almost like reproductions of books. So like photocopied, like classic books. <laughs> and then like right next door to like a hammam where like you can, well, it's based, separated by, by gender, I think. But like you can go down into like this very dark place where like <laughs> you will strip naked and they'll, they'll hit you with like the, I don't even know what Rub they're called. Rub you with olive pits. Yeah, yeah. Scrub you down with olive pits, lying on a the hottest stone you've ever <laughs> lay on before in your life. When I, when I did it, I was hyperventilating like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. It's This is so amazing, but I also feel like I'm going to die because I'm so hot and claustrophobic. <laughs> now I'm thinking like... Um, even just like the designs there and like through your travel, like do you, do you get to pull inspiration from different places? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I was really inspired by this, the Moroccan star, which is a six-pointed star mm-hmm. and all of the inlay work with tile and wood. I, I just, I don't, I feel like time, time circulates on a different clock in places like that. The time that goes into the meticulous craft to mm. build these incredible cathedrals where the tiles the tiles are you know quarter inch big in different shapes all you're creating these insane mosaics or with wood it's just like we, we don't have the patience for that kind of thing mm. in in America at, at, at all and so I'm, I was so inspired just by the um, how you can get really close to a mosaic for example and it's and it just all makes it's 
almost mathematical. It just makes so much mm. sense. And as you back up through the room, it just becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, like doubling and doubling and doubling. But it all makes sense. None of it is... Ca- it just never feels like a single tile is out of place. Mm. And of course, there. I, I really appreciate mistakes in, in, craft, in crafts and... Um, it's like messiness. I think messiness sometimes is really beautiful because uh, you just, you have to always find shortcuts. No, nothing is always going to go right all the time, but there's this incredible beauty in in the creations like this where you're inside this amazing cathedral that's all mosaic and then outside it's just a, there's just a, you know, a dirt gutter carrying, you know, the breakfast and the rain and everything right outside. It's just this incredible juxtaposition of, of, um, of simplicity and mastery. Yeah, I love that. I get that's very well said. I can't say and it being better. there, being in the Medina, you just feel like you've walked this portal like into a hundred years ago. Oh yeah, it's just it feels so ancient. And then when you're outside the Medina, you know, you see you you see kids in jeans with backpacks going to school. <laughs> but once you step inside the Medina, that is just <laughs> there's no sense of modernity whatsoever. Yeah, one of my favorite things in the world to do is like if you're in. Um, and I'm sure this is replicated in other places. I'm just more familiar with Asia and Southeast Asia because I've been there a bunch. But just like going down an alleyway with that shops and stuff that you've that you're unfamiliar with, there's just mm. so much happening. Like, and I guess maybe it's more of like old New York City. It's sort of all changing now. But yeah, you could spend an afternoon just going down these side streets where there's a whole world within a world, and you had yeah. no idea. Oh, it's incredible. And then I feel like I had many of those experiences in Morocco Mm. and those memories stay with you forever. Mm. I mean, you can see some beautiful, you can see some beautiful streets in New York, you know, a a glimpse of old New York that, you know, sort of match your idea from a postcard or an old movie that you saw. But the interacting with the people there, I'll just share one story. When we were in Fez, totally lost, needing to eat lunch, stumbled upon this little hotel, not little, massive, massive hotel within the Medina that you never would know was there from the outside. Just this little arch door they have to bend through to, to get in. And we were the only, only people there. And this little Moroccan guy in his slippers, thanks to shuffling around, uh, served us lunch. I don't know. He must have been in the kitchen on his own or frantically called up someone, you know, down the street to, to make a to make a chicken, chicken tagine or something. Yeah, yeah. But it was amazing. <laughs> we were in this vaulted room with waterfalls and like there was a there was a Victrola playing in the mm. corner. All I felt like it was we were, it was like this haunted place and this little guy like running back and forth sort of looking at us like within the like running behind the pillars and like looking at us and like coming to give us water <laughs> and it just it was amazing I'd never seen a character like this and it just made me feel like wherever you are in the world there are people who have, truly have reached their full potential and they are the best like he is the best little gnome in this place you know mm. this little this this guy providing this great service and that is the that is the fullest of his potential that he'll ever meet and has ne- probably has never left Morocco, probably has never left the Medina in Fez. But it's the most beautiful thing to see this person in all their glory that you can't compare to anyone else in their life experience. Yeah, the, people are like really fascinated right now, like largely through like Disney and Marvel movies about like this metaverse idea and this like mm-hmm. universe or like dimensions within dimensions and stuff. It's like that is, yeah, okay, maybe I don't know anything about quantum physics, but if you, I don't mean to sound corny or like over dramatize this, but if you travel around the world, there are different realities. Oh, absolutely. Like completely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I was thinking as you said that, um, so there are like patterns and materials that uh, we would be able to recognize sort of like culturally. So like Vietnam, or I believe even in China, there's like the blue and white porcelain. Mm -hmm. um, you'll usually like large bowls or like vases. Um, I was even thinking, you have a couple like pieces here that were making me think of like New Mexico or, or Mexico. Uh -huh. um, would you be able to make a handle that is like ceramic or another material? Like, would that be practical to use or not? I've been working on that actually with uh, someone from the company Brooklyn Clay. Hmm. We've been we've been sort of curious about that, and we're in the process of that now. I'm not I'm not. 100% sure how it'll work out. I think the main concern is ceramic against another hard material. So I'm thinking of lining, um. so the outer layer being ceramic and then maybe a rubber buffer between the metal and the ceramic. So that mm. gives a little bit, just gives a little bit. So it's not like two hard pieces together. That makes sense. But I, I love the idea of it. And I just love the idea that it would be something that could warm up in your hand. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I'm, I'm really curious to make things uh, using materials from all around the world. That's sort of another idea I have, which is traveling to different parts of the world, learning about knives, uh, learning about traditional knives from that area specifically, knives that were made for a specific purpose or uh, in hunting or cooking mm. that maybe aren't made anymore and to see if there's anyone making them now or can we try and recreate recreate one? Would it still have the same practical practical use or you know, just sort of ex exploring that a bit? Because mm. a, a chef's knife, it, it, it's sort of all purpose, right, for most chopping, but like it, it's not like if you're deboning a fish or something, it's not the knife you'd use. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And also when when you think about the history of knives and cooking around the world, you wouldn't have had a chef knife. We've sort of the mm -hmm. chef knife is we've evolved to this chef knife that can really do anything. But what if you're what if you are in Alaska, you know, and you're, you're mm. what you're doing is is you know using an entire an entire whale. You know, you're not you're not chopping up your leeks at the same time. Like you're finding a way to use all of that meat, all of the skin, all of the fat. So the different tools that were used in that in that capacity are really fascinating to me. Oh, that itself could be a series or like an online show or something too. Mm -hmm. That would be amazing. Is 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 there a person uh, on this earth? I'm, I'm assuming <laughs> probably a chef that you're like, man, I would love to make them a knife and have them use my, my work. Well, you mentioned Anthony Bourdain. Yeah. Sadly, he's a huge inspiration of mine, and I, I would have loved to have the opportunity. Yeah. Um, is there someone else? I mean, so many. I just, I'm, I sort of set my intentions for offering opportunities to just bring chefs in. I just, I love being surrounded by chefs and and their, their energy and their excitement for cooking. Yeah, that's a very cool and fortunate aspect of your work. Did you did you ever envision it would get to this level? No. Yeah. No. But I, again, I, I, I don't know why. Like, let's say, you know, for example, when I was an actress, oh my gosh, I could see myself standing on stage and accepting my first Oscar. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or the incredible roles that I would be playing. It was much easier, I guess, because I had seen it done before, mm -hmm. much easier to imagine the goal. But one thing I really love about my work is that it allows me to be very present. It allows me to assess every day where I am, what's happened that led up to this point, what I can be proud of, what I want to change, and who I want to invite in in the future. Hmm. And so I think that instead of, instead of a certain goal, 
um, I tend to think of like a ne- the next project, like who would I, who would I like to work on this with? Mm. What are, what are the areas that I'd like to explore? Yeah, I was thinking of, of rounding this out with, and this is a very unpresent thought, but um, I won't date you completely here, but let's say 10 years ago you were living a different life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, acting, training to act. Now you're making knives. Uh, do you foresee another life down the line where you're making something else or doing something else or are you just... just day at a time focusing on your craft. Oh, totally. I mean, day, day to day, I am just focusing on my craft, but, but having had that experience of a real, of a real change, mm. uh, I certainly, I always say that like, you know, get your knife now because it could be something else in 10 years. <laughs> wow. Um, all right. I think it's cool to cap it there. Well, let me say thank you. Um, you have done pretty much like every form of, of, I'm not media, but like you've been covered by like every possible form of media. Uh, I'm just a guy who drives around with a couple of microphones. So <laughs> thank goodness. Um, I know you've told your story many times. So thank you for also allowing me to, to help amplify your story. Uh, I'm very fortunate again that I get to go all around the world and meet very cool people and then know those people. Uh, it, I don't make money, but in, and I don't even know if I ever like, would want to change this in a way that I would have to, to make money. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I am like living out my dreams in, in doing this and I, and I wouldn't change it at all. So, uh, thank you for, for being a part of it and for having me in your home. Oh, well, thank you for sharing this time with me. It's really, it's really inspiring to talk with people like you. Thank you so much. Cool. Cheers. All right, Voyagers. That is a wrap on episode 261 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thanks for listening to this one and thanks Chelsea for having me at your home and for allowing me to share your story and to learn more about what you do. I'm very happy to now know you. All right, Voyagers, I've got some more in the pipe coming this week. I will be recording. You know what? I'll leave a little mystery for you, Uh, but got some cool ones coming. So thank you as always for tuning in. Please, please, please take care of each other. I will catch you all very, very soon.